Hi everyone and welcome to Culture Tasters, your weekly sample of today's creative industries. Each of our episodes is focused on a specific industry like film, visual arts, fashion, music, culinary, and even performing arts. My name is Raquel Serabrenig, joined by my co-host Alfredo Achar. We will be guiding you through changes and shifts that are affecting these industries and interview the stakeholders and key players making those changes happen. In this episode, we sat down with Ignacio Alvarez and Ligia Cisneros from Alvarez Design Studio to talk about how design has continued to change during the COVID-19 pandemic. Their journeys as creatives in a technical career and the misconceptions people have towards interior designers. Lastly, how and why interior design is at the forefront of the creative Thank world. Thank you so much, Ignacio and Ligia, for joining us today. We are so honored and excited to have you here. As you know, we're here to culture taste and to have fun and learn more about what you do on your daily lives as creatives and interior designers. So I want to take a moment and allow you to introduce yourselves, tell us about your journey so far, and Ligia, maybe we can start with you. So my name is Ligia. I graduated from SCAD, so like Ignacio and Raquel. Uh, graduated about six years ago now or seven years ago. Ever since graduating, uh, I worked for Perkins and Will, which was a very, um, it's one of the, the bigger like companies for interior design and like healthcare, commercial interiors. Um, and then like just larger educational projects. It was very um, research-based. Um, now I'm actually working for a high-end luxury store, um, furniture. So it's a different world, um, but it's kind of mixing everything we learned in school plus business. And now I'm part of the Alvarez Design Studio with Ignacio. That's amazing. And I know, Ignacio, you've been wor working on building your own company for a while, and it's really exciting, exciting to see it grow yeah. and, and see all of these amazing projects. So I would love, to, we would love to hear a little bit more about that and how you started it. Well, Lee and I actually also, um, we met at SCAD, we met at school, um, took a lot of the same courses together, sort of the same uh, educational journey. After I graduated, I moved directly to New York where I started working in high-end residential uh, work, mostly in the Hamptons with a fairly well-known designer named Marie-Christine McNally. And I left that niche because I thought, you know, this is a very small scale. I want to, I want to, you know, see what things are like on a larger scale. So I went to Jeffrey Beers International, a really large, well-known firm and then I was there for a couple of years and then uh, ended up at March and White Design, which is where I spent most of my tenure in New York as a designer. I worked there um, for four and a half years and I was sort of leading projects, um, really large scale, like multifamily condominiums, the Lantern House project on the west side of New York that related companies developed and uh, Thomas Heatherwick was the architect for. Some people really love the building, some people really hate it. Um, but we were in charge of doing the interiors for that building. So I, my, my background is a little bit, you know, in residential and then in commercial and some retail work. And then right before COVID hit, I just, you know, I'd been wanting to do it and I, I just went for it and I said, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to start my own studio. And um, I had a really good a friend. He, he and his wife reached out to me and they bought a beautiful, uh, home in Tribeca, uh, Morris Ajmi, ar architect. Um, and 
I was very nervous. I was still working at Marching White, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this. And I just went for it. And that project led to another project, which led me to file an LLC, which, you know, the whole, the whole business of interior design, um, it just, it happened really organically. And I think I was really lucky because it happened during a pandemic. Um, and then I reached out to Lihia and I really needed a business partner. I needed some support. I needed some feedback. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're in a creative industry. It's hard to do this stuff alone. Lihia was the person that I, you know, I think I vision, our visions are very similar and I think it was, you know, the best match. So Lihia joined Alvarez Design Studio and uh, we're sort of partners now and, and we're running the studio. We have um, a couple of potential projects coming up, really exciting one in Austin, a few here in Atlanta, all residential work, by the way, I've sort of left doing really large scale work and sort of am honing down on some, you know, residential stuff, which is what I like the most. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit about how I got started. So you talk about firms and working in commercial versus residential education, healthcare, and all these different subject matter areas of interior design. So for the people that wouldn't know what interior design is, and there's tons of misconceptions of what an interior design does, what does it mean to be an interior designer? Who do you work with and what do you do once you onboard a client? I think that it's such a broad uh, field where I think there's a misconception that what interior de designers do is just like decorate and put pillows and like accessories but there's so yeah. much more behind that as, as someone who is now like more towards residential high end and did um, like healthcare and stuff. It's a lot of, a lot of the design decisions that are made um, are all based on like research and like study case, uh, case studies and also like surveying, um, you know, your, your clients or the way that a building is going to be used. So I would say we're more, um, interior architects than we are interior designers or decorators. Um, when I worked at Perkins and Will, I was working for a healthcare a transplant center for people that had heart transplants, uh, kidney transplants, and it was basically a building that they that already existed that was a bank, and we had to turn that into um, the transplant center. So there's so much that went into that where I had no idea. Um, that you need all of these different types of walls, radiation. So you kind of learned about your client, their lives, how they're living, what they need to kind of support their daily lives. And you kind of take that into your design, you know, decisions where you make, um, you know, you need natural light or you need materials that are going to be easier for people to clean. So there's so much that goes into um, what you decide for a building. Um, and then when you do residential, it's a little bit, I don't want to say necessarily superficial, but it's mostly based on like, how are you going to make someone's house a home and how you can bring their personality into their own space? No, I, I think she has made a really good point in the difference between decoration and design. In my opinion, um, designers, interior designers, we have to solve a problem, right? And I'm not taking anything away from decorators. I think what they do is amazing. I think it's necessary. It's required. It's, it makes things beautiful. And we like beautiful things as, as creative people. But as designers, as interior designers or interior architects, it's our responsibility to make sure that space is 
are safe, that spaces are, you know, there, there, there's, there's so many things we have to think about how a space is planned so that it's effective and efficient if it's a workplace, right? So that people are getting into work and they're doing their job efficiently. Um, is it, you know, what type of tile are we putting on the floor so that people don't slip and fall? You know, we think about all of these problems. We're problem solvers more than we are. Let's just, you know, I, I've heard the word fluff for decorators. They just fluff things up and make things look pretty. I think it irks our nerves a little bit as designers when we hear, oh, you're just a decorator. You just pick out the wall color and, you know, a pretty pillow. And it's like, well, no, a, a, a big part of our job um, is space planning. It's, you know, doing doing a multitude of things that people don't necessarily see initially until they're in the building and they're sort of living in it and living in that environment. You don't really see everything that goes into that. And then the business of design, everything that, that in, you know, that is involved, it's very different than what's involved with a decorator. We work with uh, a general contractor. We work with vendors every single day. We work with artisans and craftsmen that make our furniture that we custom design we think about the ergonomics of that furniture. How does it feel on the on the client's back? You know, are they an older couple and they need more back support? We think about we work with um, stone people, with lighting designers. You know, how does the lighting affect an interior? What is our what is the purpose of the lighting? What is it doing? It's it's such a multifaceted and multidisciplinary um, business and career that I think it's quite different from decoration. Um, again, not taking anything away from decorators, because at the end of the day, we also bring in decorators to help us sort of finalize and make sure that, yes, we've created this beautiful space already with our finishes and with, you know, whatever we've done, but you're going to make it even more beautiful for an experience for whoever the client may be. I, I wanted to ask you something about what you're saying, because I think it's really interesting that you're pointing out the user so much and how much of a priority um, like the user is for what you do. Uh, I also wanted to ask you how much of a, because I have, I have a brief background in architecture. I actually started working, uh, studying architecture uh, before getting into film. And it was such an independent process, the design part of it, that it was for me and, and a lot of people um, that were in my classes, it was hard to like collaborate and share like a creative vision with someone else. So how I want to ask you guys how how is that creative process between you and and between you two, and also um, of course with your team, and what are some of the most important things that you take into account when tackling or taking over a new project? I think from my experience working in different teams and different types of people, seniority whether someone is you know the design director and you're a D1, it's yeah. hard because there's so many egos involved sometimes. The best way to work with someone is letting go of the ego and kind of just listen to other people's perspectives because people can see see things very differently and approach something, let's say a wall with more color or you thought about using a different material. And sometimes that's just like the missing piece that you need to kind of make everything kind of tie together. I think that Ignacio and I work really well because we have that. We have a really good friendship besides from being partners. We we understand each other's view and, and trust each other, I think. So I, I think that's what makes us like a really good team. It's it's really fun to work with Ligia because we're we're very as much as we are similar, we're also very different. Ligia has a very specific approach to color and to texture and to pattern. And that's something that 
I don't think that I'm as good at, right? There's certain aspects of design where I think that I'm, I'm, I excel in and I'm good at, and then I need someone to balance that off. Like, I don't compliment that. It, yeah. You have to have someone to compliment your work and bounce off ideas. It's a interior design is such a creative field that, you know, you can't do it alone. And yeah. I think another really important thing, a thing is how you develop a concept. Um, developing the conceptual ideas behind what you're going to do and how that beginning is really critical. It's really crucial to executing something well. And like Lichia mentioned, the user is, or the client in, in any case is almost always your priority, right? Yeah. You're designing their home, you're designing, you know, how they're going to live. If it's a residential project, if it's a healthcare project, you're designing for an even bigger audience. So, but you have to be, you have to be super attentive and you have to take into consideration uh, not only what you think is going to look best, but what the client wants, because at the end of the day, you're not going to live in these, in these spaces. They are. So you want them to feel comfortable. You want them to feel confident and you want them to have the trust in you as the designer that they hire you. They hired you for your professional expertise, right? And that, you know what you're doing, but you're also listening. I think listening is, is sort of just like you hit it right on the head. It's, it's the, the main, the main thing that we have to do as designers. And I've always said like, a good interior designer can design what they know. And like a superb interior designer can design for any client for, you know, if they want a Riviera style, you know, French home, you can design that. But if you want something that looks, you know, very contemporary and modern in New York city, like you can design that too. And it doesn't have to be what you, what you like. It's what the client wants. You just sort of refine those ideas and make sure that they're cohesive and that they look great. I want to talk about shift gears a little bit and talk about the industry in general, more importantly, accessibility. I think what we see, I guess, from the outside is that interior design is usually an industry that is for people that can pay for it, right? And I something that we've seen in 2020 and going into 2021 is that people are spending a lot more time in their homes or in their spaces. So how have you seen that the industry has changed during this period of time? Do you see, do you think interior design is going to towards a more accessible type of industry? And if, if not, how can we make that happen? Also, also just uh, adding something to, the, to what Raquel said, uh, how does the, like, like the, is the creative process being affected in the way that people are now like living, working, exercising, studying in the same space? Like, how is that shift? Um, loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> it is loaded. I can answer Hard this. Ball. And then Lika can, can help me. I think that uh, I, was, I was thinking back on this and just technology in general and social media and the advancements that that's made. 10 years ago, we didn't have FaceTime, right? So when I was in school, that wasn't a thing. This past project I did through COVID, I did 100% through FaceTime. I never had to reach the client. The client was pregnant as well. So, you know, and there wasn't a vaccine at this point. So it was, you know, she was very protective of her space, didn't want anyone in her home. But we executed a beautiful project. I was in Atlanta, she was in New York. And I mean, it happened. Um, that's number one. She wanted space that she could work from home for, from. Um, she wanted to be able to exercise like, Alfredo just mentioned, she wanted all of these different areas to be a part of her home that weren't a part of the home before, right? 
And we had to think about how that was going to work. I don't think the client necessarily has changed too much in terms of what they want. I think they've, they have a heightened sense of awareness that they want it, right? Since they've been locked in that space for such a long time, they've noticed every single thing. They're like, oh, my kitchen counter is too old. Or I don't know, I need to change the bathroom tiles. Or it's just, they've been stuck inside for such a long time that they've just become so aware of what, what changes need to be made. Or this isn't working very well because I have a baby in the room and my office is next door. So I need to move the office downstairs so that, you know, when I'm having calls or what have you, I need a more effective plan in terms of the way that my space is, is planned. So rethinking all of that, I think is sort of where we are right now. Um, I don't know if you want to add to that, Lihia. I think there's so many resources online, Pinterest, you know, yeah. um, influencers on Instagram are, are people that are really doing it. You can literally make your house out of Target and it could be something really cool. Um, so I think that there's a lot of, um, I think interior design is really going to continue to, to be a focal point in people's lives. Because when you go to restaurants, you want to ba- have that backdrop where you take the picture and you post it and you kind of want to have that kind of same feeling in your home, you know, because we want to yeah. brag about where we're at and whatever. So I think that also um, has something to do with interior design. Yeah, not only that, I think you go out, let's say you pay $50 for a meal it's not only the meal that you want right you want the whole experience you want to feel like you had a wonderful night and I think and you want people to know that you are there exactly and design plays such an important role there I think it's so interesting I was thinking the other day we've been trying to tell people what interior design is how important it is and oftentimes people say why do I need an interior designer and now that everyone is stuck at home that's when they say shoot of course I need one I'm miserable in the space that I created yeah, for myself. yeah. And, and, and again there's this misconception that it's like oh they're just gonna make your space pretty but not they're gonna make it like you guys make it functional you make it like accessible like livable yeah yeah and and something that you guys hit on at the beginning uh that generally speaking interior design was for sort of uh wealthier or you know clients that had a bit more money I think it's become extremely more accessible I I, I know several companies that are, you know, they're, they're virtual design companies, but you just book a designer for, you know, 200 bucks um, and they help you out. I mean, you just FaceTime with them or get on a Zoom call and they show you their space, you give them ideas um, and they, they sort of execute it on their own, but from an expert, from someone who, who can tell them or at least guide them through the process. So while it used to be a process that um, was for people who could have really afford it, Um, And it's still, there is a niche for really high end stuff, right? Um, It's become way more, way more accessible. And and lots of people, um, people that are young, my age, you know, that they want their house to look really amazing too. And they'll book a call or a couple of calls with a designer and they sort of go through a floor plan. They go through some general recommendations, how they can make their space more efficient, especially if they're working from home now or whatever it may be. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't break the bank. It's it's not hundreds of or tens of thousands of dollars, which generally is the case for some of these other really big projects. So it's become way more accessible um, in the in the in terms of finance finances, but also in that you can just literally hop on a on a computer screen or on a phone and you know talk to someone about their space. 
What are some things that interior designers know that would surprise someone that has no clue about interior design? I've always told people that we're, uh, although we don't go through like psychology in school, I think we're part psychologists because I think I'm, I'm really serious. I think that interior designers shape the way that people experience space. I think if like, if you walk, for example, if you walk into a museum and the ceilings are 35 feet high, you're going to feel really small in that space. And that was done per, you know, on purpose. It was meant for you to feel really tiny and, you know, in this grandiose space, usually white walls, and you just focus on the art, right? So there's a lighting designer, uh, whoever the curator is that selected what art is going in there. And the interior designer really is the person who psychologically shaped that space for you. So I don't think that people are, maybe they are aware, but not hyper aware of how much we control psychologically about the space that you inhabit. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on that. I think it's also true to, of course, architecture, but also how, um, for example, it's kind of similar, but production designers in film, they completely manipulate how the space is perceived in front of the camera. So I think it's also yeah. really cool. It's exactly that. And color too. Likia can speak more yeah. to it because she's extremely like talented with color, but uh, there's, there's psychology behind color. Like you're not going to paint a restaurant red right? You're, you're going to think about what color, you know, tiles or what, you know, what textures and patterns. I mean, there's, there's something that people don't know too much, but like, for example, in restaurant design, you don't want to put a really comfortable chair there. You mm. want to put something that's a little more uncomfortable so that people come in and out of the restaurant faster and the restaurant makes more money. Because if you have people yeah. sit in this really comfortable, you know, beautiful luxe chair, they're going to sit there because they're comfortable and they're not going to leave. And that's not exactly yeah. what that's not exactly what a business owner wants. They want, you know, a turnaround so that they can have a, a bigger profit. Lika, what do you know that no one else knows? You know, tell us. Um, I know so many measurements about things. <laughs> <laughs> like a dining table is like thirty inches high, so I can tell you that's not going to fit there. I um, just like little things like that that I'm like, okay, that's that's five feet and it's five feet or whatever. And it's just from being in the field and just kind of measuring things, knowing um, knowing what your space would look like. I have a photographic memory so I can kind of look at something and then remember it and then just sell it to the client. This is what we do every day. This is what we breathe. This is what, what I wake up. This is what I do when I go to sleep. I think about like spaces. I think about the furniture. I think about the materials that I'm gonna select. Um, like next time that you go into you know, an urgent care, or you go into a supermarket, just look around you, look at the types of floors, the transitioning and floors, there's reasons why um, you have a little mark in the middle out of metal, that's the transition floors, that's where like materials end, materials start. When you go to an airport, when you look at these columns, focus on like the bottom of it, it's purposely designed that way so that your luggages don't hit that. So like, there's like so many different little things around us every single day. And all of that was thought out by an interior architect. And I mean, we think about the most minuscule details. I'm talking about where we select the amount of selection and in interior design, that process, which is to me the most tedious and sort of draining process. We select things up to like, I mean, hardware can be quite fun because it's, you know, there's really funky, cool hardware, but we're thinking about outlet location, right? Is it 18 inches above the floor? Um, what is the finished floor and is it right at right where it's supposed to be? What is the color of that outlet? 
I mean, and that is not really something that necessarily is aesthetic. It's, it needs to function because you need to be able to see that outlet too, right? So you can't design something that's going to blend into the wall. Maybe in a residential space you can, but for other spaces, you need to make sure that out, that outlet is clearly there and clearly visible. Same thing with the exit signs. There's things that we don't think are necessarily beautiful, but that we have to literally put into place to make sure that people can evacuate a space safely, that people can get out of dangerous situations. Um, so we manipulate space. Um, it's a very good comparison with a production designer in film, but we really do. Beware of the interior designer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every space you go has been manipulated by them. Yes. And again, I think the, the main point to take from this is that as interior designers, our, our job is to make spaces efficient, effective, safe, and they're supposed to enhance the way that you live. I mean, you want to go home and feel, not dread going home, right? After a long no. day, you want to go home and relax. You want to go home and be inspired by your space, whether that's to go in a nook and read a book, or if you're a writer to go and write, or, you know, if you're a painter to, you need those spaces that make you happy. Um, at the end of the day, that's also really important. Everything's intentional. In, in a yeah. Especially now, like, as we said, that people are spending so much time inside. Yeah. And speaking of intentional, one thing I did, I did want to mention, like, in terms of, um, like, advocacy for interiors and, and things that I think we're really responsible for is the environment. And I, I don't think a lot of people would probably put, to, put those two things together. But I think we're, as interior designers, I think we're really responsible for that. There's tons of materials out there that are eco-friendly now that, you know, they don't end in landfills. And there's not a lot of design studios that I think are doing that type of work. I, I think that they just go with what's beautiful and they don't really think about how it's going to affect the earth, right? How is, how is this going to affect our planet? For example, I don't do room to like a full room carpet. I, I never do that. Carpets are made out of um, petroleum-based fibers that once they end up in a landfill, they are burned and they give off toxins to the people who are burning them. And these people end up dying at relatively young ages because they're breathing in harsh chemicals, VCT tiles or anything that's made out of vinyl, I almost never use. I mean, I would say I've never used it. Um, I think we have to be really conscious of what materiality we're using and, or, or you know, where we're sourcing our things from, making sure that they're local yeah. or, you know, if we find this really beautiful, um, wooden table made in Oaxaca, Mexico, that we buy it from the artisan who made it. And we don't buy it from, you know, whoever is reselling it at this ridiculous price. You know, I think all of that stuff and being sustainable and, and still, because you can still craft really beautiful spaces and still protect the planet. I think we have to take ownership of that and make sure that people are aware that we can also, as designers, protect the planet, the environment. That's, I think, the greatest way we could have ended the, the episode, because I think that's so important, sustainability, especially in this industry. Well, thank you so much, Ligia Cisneros and Ignacio Alvarez, for joining us today. It has been wonderful, and we can only hope that we can do it in person really soon. <laughs> thank you for having us. With some margaritas and wine. Oh <laughs> in a cool interior. Sounds like yeah. a plan. Thank you so much for tuning into Culture Tasters. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. 
Make sure to subscribe for future episodes and to follow us on Instagram at Culture Tasters. This podcast is produced by Raquel Sarabernik and me, Alfred Achar. We thank you for your support and see you next time.